0: Well, I'd like to invite you to turn to page 1171 in your Sanctuary Bible. Our reading today is 1 Thessalonians Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. That would be a good tongue twister, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. And you'll notice that this is the first half of chapter 5. Last week we looked at the second half of chapter 5. It's also printed uh, in your bulletin on the uh, green insert on the, on the second page, so you can follow along there as well. I'd like to give a few words of introduction um, about what we're doing in this season of the church's life, and then a little bit about uh, our passage for today. We're in week two of a series on our Compass for Community. It's also known as our Behavioral Covenant. It's an agreement that we've made with each other about how we do life together, particularly when we meet together together. Um, to make decisions for the church in leadership meetings and other kinds of meetings. Um, and so the executive committee has been using this for over two years. The Veritas team uses it. I, I've seen that the facilities upgrade team uses it. And uh, perhaps in this new year of new boards and and uh, sort of new ideas and new assignments, it might be good for all the boards to start using this. And uh, I'll, I'll, I will encourage it. I will encourage it. Um, this resource that was given to us was really it was given to us by our denomination it's it's something that's been found that really helps churches do life together in a way that makes it meaningful that makes it effective and um, what I like to think of is this list it's kind of in a set of agreements that we have with each other about how we how we treat each other there's really nothing terribly unreasonable in this list there's nothing any anything in this list that anyone would look at and go well that's that's not right no, it's all right. In fact, it's all, all of it's scriptural, which is the great thing. And as we're going to see, uh, even from last week, when we saw the f- First Thessalonians chapter 5, 12 through 23, it sounded a lot like this list. There were some elements of it that were just sort of lifted bit by bit from it. And the scriptures have actually operated in this way. The scriptures, certain parts of them, are like lists of ways to act when we're in community. And that was certainly true of our reading last week. So that it was a part of worship, that it was a part of life together was true of the New Testament church. And I think it, it makes sense for it to be true of the 21st century church as well. So um, this week's, uh, uh, I guess, compass point, there's 10 compass points, is the second one, and I put a box around it so that we could kind of hold it up. Last week we said we agreed to yield to the direction of the Holy Spirit. We don't quench the Spirit or put out its flame, this week we'll be looking at that we seek to build each other up and not to tear down. So the, the uh, reading for this week is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1, 1 through 11. And I just want to give a brief introduction about this book in general. This is a book that Paul wrote. We think it probably is the very first letter that he wrote in the entire New Testament. He got kicked out of Thessalonica abruptly. He had to leave. It was dangerous for him there. He had to move on. And um, there were some things that he just didn't get around to being able to say to people. They were important, but not of probably primary importance. So you can imagine when he got there, the first thing he did is he went to the synagogues and he preached the gospel. The gospel about Jesus Christ dying on the cross and saving the world from its sins so that it could be presented to God as whole and blameless and justified in God's sight. And that was Paul's big deal. He talked about that almost nonstop. He preached that all the time. And I think in his mind, he was gonna get to the part about what our life together looks like further down the road, but you have to get the gospel first. That's the foundation on which you build other things. Well, he didn't have time to get to the part about life together. And when he left town, he he wrote them a quick letter with a sort of a laundry list. These are all the things that I didn't quite get around to you, to telling you about. Uh, The gospel's important, but you have the gospel. So I wanna tell you about, there's this hope that we have this beautiful hope about the resurrection and about actually what it looks like when Jesus returns. It's really um, beautiful. Uh, you'll, you'll often hear it read at a funeral, in fact. Um, and then this chapter 5, that uh, this is what life together looks like. But interspersed all throughout 1 Thessalonians is this kind of reminder at the end of each of the chapters. By the way, Christ will be coming back soon. He's coming soon. And so this was woven in and out of this book as, uh, as something that kind of holds it all together. Well, you know, Christ is coming soon, so don't be worried about your future. You're going to heaven. Christ is coming soon, so the way you treat each other is important because the master's going to return, and what is he going to find when he returns? Is he going to find you uh, at peace with each other, or is he going to find you in conflict with each other that's not overcomable in, a, in, a, in its conflict so over and over again, he was saying, Jesus is returning. And um, I really feel for Paul, because it really, to me, when I read Paul, it really seems like he thought that Jesus was going to come back, maybe even before he died. I mean, he, he, told, he even told people, don't get married. Don't get married, you know, unless you really have to get married, because there's so much work to do, and when you get married, you don't have time for, and you start having kids, you don't have time for all this gospel work. So it's better to remain unmarried so you can be like me, he says. And in several places he says, be like me, which is kind of funny. Um, don't get married so that you can do this work. There's a lot of work out there. And um, what Paul also says, which is the same thing the gospels say, is that nobody knows when the Lord is going to return. So it really, in a way, it makes sense is that Paul, even here in our reading, he'll say, I don't know when the Lord's going to come back, but I expect him to come back basically at any minute. And if he's going to come back at any minute, I want to live my life as if he's coming back at any minute, even if I don't really know when it is. And he had this honest expectation that it would be in his lifetime or in the lifetime of the people that were around him. In reality, we know that that wasn't the case. The day of grace has been extended over and over and over again, and we don't know why but we praise God for it, that we were all even born so that we could hear the gospel, so that the world hasn't come to an end before. And we live in this hope that actually maybe the world will, you know, the world will come to an end, that Jesus will return before we die, and then we don't have to experience a physical death. And we'll go and be with Jesus and with the saints that have gone before us. We hope for that. Um, So one thing, and I just want to frame it this way, is that Paul tells people not to worry because Jesus has saved them. So you don't worry about the future. It's all sewn up. The gospel has saved you. Uh, Jesus on the cross has saved you. So don't worry. But on the other hand, he says, don't worry, but be ready. If you want to worry and you're getting readiness, maybe that you, that's one way of doing it. But not to be anxious, but to be ready. Because the Lord is going to come back. And even though your salvation is secure, he has some expectations when he returns. There's some accounting that's going to happen. He's going to ask you, what have you done with all these gifts that I've given you? What what kind of return have I gotten on my investment that I invested in you? How is he going to find us? How is he going to find the church that he built? So don't worry, but be ready. Be ready. Uh, and that's, that kind of picks up some of this, the tension inside First uh, Thessalonians 5. So with that introduction, let's go to our reading. First Thessalonians. Paul writes, Now brothers, about times and dates, and this is about the end, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly. As labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore... Encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would add your blessing to it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to break up our passage real quickly and just kind of go through parts of it. It's kind of Bible study uh, time here from the pulpit, but look at verses 1 through 8. Just take those as a unit. And there's that common theme that I alluded to in the, in the introduction, that the end is coming, you know. Um, and this is in line with how the Gospels talk about it. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus says. It comes like a thief in the night. You know, we, it's just, we just don't know when that end time is. And um, in, in essence, there's some wisdom here, which is you could spend your energy trying to figure out when that is. And I think we all know of, of some fam- famous people who have spent an awful lot of ink and an lot, awful lot of hours and an awful lot of billboards on figuring out exactly when the Lord will return and predicting it and selling all their possessions and getting their followers to do likewise. And it's, a, it's, it's comical. It's nonsensical. And that actually, it's worse than comical. It, it, it it's, kind of gives a black eye to our faith because um, people predict something that doesn't come true. It makes them look foolish. It makes all of us look foolish by association. And Paul is right away saying, dates and times, I'm not going to write to you about that stuff, because we don't know anything about that stuff. And we're not going to spend any time trying to figure out any of that stuff. The Lord will come again, but he'll be like a thief in the night. It will be like labor pains that come on a pregnant woman out of nowhere. We just don't know when it's coming. Don't spend any time trying to figure it out, but be ready. Be ready for it at all times, but don't try to spend your time. Don't spend your energy figuring out when it is. Spend your energy on your readiness for it to come, and it could come at any moment. We have that wonderful parable of the wise virgins in the Gospels. These virgins who conserved the energy that they needed to light their lamps. They didn't, they didn't burn it all out so quickly. They, they were wise enough to know that they needed to be ready at, at the right time. And so then when the bridegroom came, they were able to greet him and go in with him. Whereas the ones who weren't prepared cried out and were left outside and said could you share some of yours with me and and it just you can't share that kind of thing that's not a shareable thing so we have this sense here in in verses one through eight um and the 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 imagery is beautiful i love how paul does this he talks about day and night he talks about light and darkness and some of the most beautiful and i think um uh Affirming and edifying words in the Bible are found in this verse. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. That's what Paul says about followers of Jesus. Verse eight, but since we belong to the day, I love it. And all sorts of things you know, uh, happen at night that really, you, know, you should just be asleep at night. You ever hear that saying, nothing good ever happens after midnight? right and i just thought that was kind of like oh when i was young i used to go out after midnight all the time and and um, but then i realized you know that's true uh, actually nothing ever good ever ever good ever really did happen after well maybe once or twice you'd go to denny's and have a great conversation over some pancakes with somebody but most of the time it was just stupid stuff and if i had been home in bed it would have all been better you know Nothing good happens after midnight. That's kind of what Paul is saying here is, is if you live at night, you're going to be out at night. You're going to be, you know, you're not going to be paying attention. You're going to be doing things that you um, are ashamed of potentially. And then you're going to sleep in and you're going to miss the day. The day is going to dawn. You're going to wake up at one in the afternoon and half the day is gone and you're not ready because somebody could come at 9 a.m. and knock on your door and you'd be fast asleep, you know. So be ready, but but he says for those of you who um, belong to the day, be self-controlled, put on faith and love as a breastplate, and put on the hope of salvation as a helmet. So then, verses nine and ten, I, I'd like to d- divide up into another unit, um, where Paul says you don't really have to worry that the night is there; that some people are going to perish in the night, but. Paul says, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. I'd like to see what the Reformed theologians say about that. It would be very interesting. God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's this hope that we have because we're children of the day, because we're children of the light, that salvation is ours in Jesus Christ. So again, don't worry Don't worry about your salvation. You've got it. You're not appointed for wrath. You're appointed for salvation. And then verse 10. um, How is this possible? Because he died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, and now this is a different kind of use of awake or asleep, not that um, sort of, there was a sort of a figurative awake or asleep between being ready or not ready. This awake or asleep is actually a euphemism for alive or dead. Uh, in the, in the, in the New Testament, they have this euphemism. They, I don't know, it's sort of, uh, sometimes squeamish about saying that somebody has died or somebody is dead. And so they say, he's fallen asleep. He's fallen asleep, you know? So the, when Paul warns some people about, um, you know, how to take communion properly, he says, some of them who haven't done it properly have fallen asleep, you know, but really meant that they, they died. And, um. There was even some confusion about this with Jesus and his, his, his apostles. Uh, the little girl, is she asleep or is she dead? Well, you know, she actually was dead and Jesus raised her, to, raised her again to life. But what Paul is saying here is whether you are alive or you are no longer alive, you are still alive when you are with Jesus. His, he is still keeping you alive in the sense that your life is with Christ. Whether you're actually living or whether you've died. And that's this hope that we have of eternal salvation. So then finally, we get to verse 11, and there's this really strong connective word here. It's therefore. But it, this is actually a sort of, in the Greek text, it's, it's sort of up or intensified. It can only be translated as therefore, because we don't have a way of saying really, really therefore. Or, I mean it, therefore. So we just write therefore. So this is actually a stronger therefore than you'll find in some other parts of the Bible. This is a, so let's take the sweep of all of what I just said in the first 10 verses of this. And I'm going to drive it into this one point that Paul now makes is what he's saying. Therefore, and I mean it, everything up until now is about this. He says, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you're doing. Encourage each other that your salvation is secure. Encourage each other that you're children of the light, not children of the darkness. Encourage each other that you're not appointed to wrath, but to everlasting life. Encourage each other. And, and also, and if you look at verse uh, chapter four, there's this great encouragement about how Jesus is gonna come again. Encourage one another. And then also build one another up. Build each other up. In light of everything, in light of the Lord's return, in light of the hope that you have, in light of the light and darkness, build one another up. And the good news for the Thessalonians is, in fact, they were already doing this. So Paul is saying, you're doing this, I'm going to encourage you to keep on doing this. If he was writing a letter to the Corinthians, he would have said, do this, and by the way, you are not doing this. But to the Thessalonians, he was able to say, do this, and by the way, you are doing it, which is great, so keep on doing it. Continue to do it. So this verse 11 kind of is is where everything was driving with verses 1 through 10. Encourage one another. You're going to be all right. You've got the Lord. You, You live in the day. You're fine. And build each other up, just as, in fact, you are already doing. And so... It's interesting that Paul is thinking a lot about the future. When will the Lord come? He's expecting it to be in his lifetime. But his thoughts about the future are really grounded in the present. His thoughts about what's going to happen next are so that the life we live now can be as meaningful as possible and can be as fruitful as possible so that when the Lord does return, we can give a good account for what we have. So the now is completely predicated on our hope for the future. And the now is completely built up by our hope for the future. <clears throat> and this is this image that we get in, in um, the scriptures and other places. When the Lord returns, the Lord will expect something. The Lord will make an account of it somehow. Not whether you're a believer or not, that I mean that will be clear, and you'll be you'll be saved. But there's this other aspect of our lives where He'll say, what have you done with what I've given you? What have you done with it? Have you been faithful with it? Have you been working hard with it So I think one one thing that <clears throat> pastors often hear is that they people say, "I wish there were more application points in your sermon or something like that. Tell me what to do give me some give me some tangible things that I can just do because then I know, you know, if you leave me in, in theology land and just say how great this picture that you're painting is of, of, you know, some obscure theological thing, well, that doesn't help me very much, you know. And I, I, I agree with that. I actually I agree with that. You could do too much of that theologizing and not enough application. This is all application today, everybody. I mean, just hear me. This is all application what I'm about to, to talk about now. Um, This is a very practical thing that Paul is asking the Thessalonians to do and and us to do as well. Encourage one another and build each other up. There's a lot of work, and I mean this, there is a lot of work that goes into building each other up. It's far less work to tear other people down. It's a lot of work to build. It's just like when you're building something, like a sandcastle. It takes, it takes an hour to build a sandcastle. You can destroy it in five seconds. It's very easy to do, right? It's a lot of work to build up. If we want practical work, here it is. I mean, there's a lot of things. Our list, our compass for community, has all sorts of practical ways that guide our interactions with each other. And, and I just want to bring up two, and I'm going to preach on those later in this series, but some of these have been really the hardest for me in my life. They're hard things to do. And one, one is to communicate directly with other people instead of communicating them with them through another person. It's always easier to go through another person. Could you tell so-and-so for me? Or you kind of put it out there and you hope that the, the wave will sort of like the tsunami going around the globe. It'll eventually hit that other person and they'll kind of, you know what? That's easy to do, but its effects on community are toxic. It's a mess. It doesn't work. And and the message doesn't really ever get through correctly anyways. What's really hard for me is to sit down directly with one person and just say, you know, this could be kind of awkward, but I just need to talk to you directly about this thing. Maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe I I just need to find out more. That takes work. That's like honest work. You kind of have to make yourself vulnerable. You could be wrong. They could be wrong. You're risking that they'll take offense, that you talk to them so directly. I mean, there's all sorts of risk involved. There's all sorts of work involved. But the payoff, just like the investment that God makes in us, is that if you are able to come to some resolution over it, You now have a much better friend than you had before. You have a deeper relationship than you had in the first place. That's the one really concrete way that we can build each other up is to communicate directly with each other. Another is that we we need to be open to the reality that conflict is normal. Conflict is natural. If we're going to do anything, if we're going to risk anything, if we're going to live at all, There's going to be conflict in any human institution, any human community, and particularly in the church. Conflict is normal. It's natural. It means you're doing something. (laughs) If you're doing nothing and you're risking nothing, then you can probably enjoy a conflict-free church. But that's not the church that God has called you to be in. That's not the church that God has called this church to be. If we're going to risk, if we're going to do, we're going we're to have to kind of, just the visually, you're going to kind of have to spread out and, and work. And when you spread out and work, your elbow is going to bump somebody. You're going to jostle something. And, and that in itself is really not the problem. It's what we do with it in that moment. And if I were to say, just get out of my way, I'm going to keep jostling and moving and everybody else has to deal with it, that doesn't work. I bump into somebody, I have to stop what I'm doing. I have to say, well, where, where is this zone in between us that we have to work out so that we can be effective? Where, where is it that we can work together in this and not bump into each other in this? And so it brings about more conversations. It brings about more community. It brings about deeper relationships. All conflict is an opportunity for a deeper relationship down the road. It is, but it takes work. It takes humility. It takes risk, it takes vulnerability, it's hard, it's hard to do. But letting a conflict go untalked about, undealt with, actually doesn't make it go away. I mean, I, 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 if you have an area rug in your house, you really could sweep dust under your rug. And if it's not too big, you wouldn't even see it. You know, if the pile isn't too big, you wouldn't see it. but it's still there, isn't it? It's still under there. It's still there, and you know it's still under there. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean you've forgotten about it. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean somebody else has forgotten about it either. If it's not on the surface and you think it's underneath the surface, it's still there. And in community, undealt with, unresolved conflict turns toxic. And the toxicity from that unresolved conflict will start enveloping the whole community and it'll lead to loss of trust, lead to loss of relationship, and ultimately to loss of mission for the church, to loss of the church's ability to go and do what the Spirit asks it to do. And that's actually one way to quench the Spirit is to not build each other up. That's one great way to quench the Spirit's fire is to not do this stuff. It's hard work we'll get into all that in later weeks um, but those are just just two just two things and there's there's more i want to talk about this phrase build each other up in, in our passage today, that is from the Greek word oikodomeo. Oikodomeo. The word oiko is the word for house. We also get our word economy from that word. This idea of building something. And it literally is used to describe building buildings. Buildings like a hut or a temple. Or talking about the building of the temple, they, they use this word. That's a literal use of the word. But there's a symbolic use of this word that's very prevalent in the New Testament. And is often used with regard to the church, building up the church. And Jesus does this most famously when he looks at Peter, who has just made a confession to him and says, you are the rock upon which I will build this church or my church. That's that same word, this idea of of building something up. You know that, that story about the, you know, the church's the church is not a meeting place. The church is not a building. The, ch- the church is not a steeple. To, you know, the church is the people. That's true. Whoever wrote that song was brilliant. You know, The church is not a building. The church is not a steeple. The church is, is people. And that's how Jesus built it. Jesus built the church on Peter and Peter's confession of him. The foundation of the church is the gospel. I like to think of it as, as we are the bricks in it. And the mortar is mixed in with the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's this glue that holds us all together and we can build this useful and powerful structure that will draw people in with it. And it's us, it's our lives. Um, And so um, on one level, we're the building, the, the symbolic building that the New Testament talks about when it talks about building something up It's almost as weak as the weakest bricks in it. It's as weak as the mortar that holds those bricks together. And if we're not preaching Christ, if we're not preaching him and his work for us on the cross, it has no foundation. If we're not living in the sacrifice that he made, and if we're not committed to each other, then we're not going to stick to each other. And the whole thing is just going to fall down. And that happens. That happens all the time. I know at the annual meeting of our denomination, that was uh, two weeks ago now, they, um, and I could be wrong on these numbers, but they, they admitted 17 new churches, which is great. Some of them were church plants. Some of them were churches that moved in from other denominations because they like our denomination and, and what we offer. But as often in every year, there were about about 10 churches that closed their doors for good. They're just gone and they disbanded, and there's a great way to disband. You sell your property, and you give it to church planting, and there's a lot. Sometimes it's good for a church to end its work because its original mission, it just doesn't exist anymore. The neighborhood that it was in, they just couldn't, they couldn't adapt to the changes in their own neighborhood. Uh, it's not a tragedy when a church closes, but it's a reality that some churches also close because their life together just was not sustainable because they didn't build each other up. Because at some point in the life of their church, they had a choice about whether they were going to stick together and work it through and do the hard work, or they weren't. And not all the churches that closed failed at this, but some of them did. Every year there's a few that just it just didn't work out. You know? And uh, I think the best thing to do in situations like that is just to absolutely blame their pastor I, I, I'm, I'm being like 75% honest here. Um, I think their pastoral leadership has a huge amount to do with it. And there are some pastors that have done a, a fabulous job of ruining several churches in succession. No doubt about it, you know. But it's not, the, but the past, so that, that's 75% of it, but 25% of it could be that there's just some, there's some communities that are sick that are not well that are not good at building each other up, that are not uh, connected to each other in healthy ways. And they can't last, and they don't last. And I think the, the grace that we have in those situations is sometimes something needs to die so that something new can come to life. And if it means they sell their possessions, they sell their buildings, and they give it to church planting, or they, they reconcile with each other and decide to go in peace, that's great. And that happens a lot. Paul talks about building each other up in this symbolic sense that the church is the people and we encourage each other, we are kind to each other, we um, do this hard work with each other of what community is like. He also talks about building each other up in terms of the use of our gifts. This is another way that he talks about building up. The church is built up when individuals in the church use their gifts. And I think this is accurate for us too. If we are committed to building each other up and tearing each other, not, and not tearing each other down, let's get the knot in there, then that means we want to use our giftedness to build this place up. Uh, and so there's all sorts of gifts that can be used in this way. There's, there's teaching, there's administrative gifts, there's evangelistic gifts, there's all sorts of gifts. Um, and Paul's litmus test is a gift is being used well when it builds the church, when it builds other people up, when it builds up the whole body. And I, honestly, in our, our body, I see this all the time, and I'm delighted by it. I'm really delighted by how everybody here has a very strong gifts, and often I see them using those gifts in the service of our church and the mission that we have. Thank you for that. Just thank you. For that, for your giftedness and for your willingness to use it. I really I really appreciate this. Uh, and I, I almost see it in people's eyes. They're kind of like lights go on and they go, I can do this. I can use this gift. I can do that. I like that. Paul's counterpoint is that sometimes we have gifts that we really want to use, but those gifts don't build up the community for whatever reason. Maybe it's the way we're using them. Maybe it's not what the community needs at that particular point in time. So we evaluate if our giftedness is doing what it was intended to. And evaluation is a normal part of life together. And if our gifts aren't building the community up, then the scriptural imperative is to not use those gifts in that setting for that season. Just to not do that. Um, Just because I have gifts doesn't mean the church has called me to use them in this moment but we're to build each other up with the gifts that we have. So one last thing, and this is maybe how Paul would say it. By the way, Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. By the way, and this is good news. It's great news. It's scary news. It's good news because if it happens in our lifetime, then we won't be going through what my mother's going through right now. We won't be going through what you've seen some of your relatives go through. Uh, we'll be spared that and we'll go and experience paradise with Jesus and with the saints that have gone on before. That's great news. But it's scary news too because the Lord will come back and he will ask for an accounting. That's what this is about. Will he find that we have built each other up? Will we have built on what he's given us, on the foundation that he has already laid for us? Or will we have taken down and torn down even what little that we had to start with. The Lord will come and he'll ask us that. But well, I pray that he'll find us ready to show a good result on the day that he comes back. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your apostle who wrote these laundry list of things to a church that he had to leave in a hurry. Thank you that you care so much for us, that you give us the big details like the gospel and the smaller details like how to live together. Lord, help us to live together in a way that builds each other up. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.